thank you all for showing up. Uh, this is the afternoon plenary for uh, the, the uh, conference that we're all really delighted that our friends at MIT are, are hosting. Thank you very much. I'm Pat Ofterheide. I come from, the, uh, from American University from Washington, D.C., where I run the Center for Social Media. I'm in love with this microphone because I'm having some trouble with my voice. So I really, really appreciate um, amplification. Uh, I'd, uh, I'm, I'm welcoming you to uh, New Media Civic Media, and I'll, I'd like to begin by harking back to the, afternoon, the earlier afternoon plenary. We talked there about artifacts, documents, and texts. Uh, and those are always sort of painfully inadequate records of, of practices, habits, and customs, and thoughts. Um, and we talked about wh what do we keep and how do we keep it and, and what's lost and what's gained by the decisions that we make. The reason that we're particularly exercised at this moment about those questions is because of the fantastic transformation brought by the combination of digital and the Internet. Obviously, this is not the first time in history for transformations in media and communication, but this is, let's face it, this is a big one. It, it changes fundamentally how people participate in their own cultures. We are now returning to ways of making and sharing culture that became quaint and folkloric in the mass media era. We are returning to collaborative creation, to the gift economy, to communities in constant communication, even if that communication is often lightweight and even pro forma. Under mass media, fan culture presaged and pioneered practices that are now becoming ubiquitous and, in the process, destroying mass media models, business models. There are big implications in all of this for people who care about the kind of thing we think about at the Center for Social Media, which is the quality of democratic culture. That's because these trends that we are seeing surface, trends that... Practices that always existed in some form, but now have become uh, uh, visible and even dominant. These trends could fortify culture that until now has been largely aspirational under a democracy, which is behaving as members of a public. If you don't have publics, and please note that I'm trying to use the plural of publics, you are actually in a tough spot to have a democracy. A public, under one definition, let's take John Dewey's, is, is what you get when you get a group of people who find, who are capable of finding the other people who are commonly affected by some problem or issue and able to strategize about what to do about it, how to describe it, what data or research they need, who else they need to be in communication with, how to mobilize those people, and who to get to in power structures and how to, how to mobilize power. Um, our record of creating publics under democracies is actually not very good. Powerful people, and especially of all powerful people, politicians, do not like people to behave like publics. They like them better as, as atomized individuals, uh, even if once in a while they do turn into a mob of atomized individuals. Um, mass media, the mass media era was a particularly bad time for publics to form. 
the, the top-down nature of these structures, the consolidation of economic power in a few hands, the interlocking elites of money and political power, the lack of spontaneous voice, uh, this was all hard. Uh, we did have some rather wan examples of public media zones, public broadcasting, uh, the news hole of newspapers, cable access. And, you know, we indulged those sites socially. We made a decision to keep them from a policy viewpoint. We paid them homage, but we rarely really loved them. The emerging media landscape, by contrast, is enormously promising for public culture, even though that, pr- that promise is still a promise. There's no foregone conclusion that, that public culture needs to blossom because you see these new behaviors. We could look forward, though, to habits and practices that help people form as publics and communicate with each other in their roles as members of the public. So that's what the people on this panel have been thinking about, have been doing, and are now going to talk about, the implications of new media forms and expressions for the revitalization of public life. And I believe you do have their bios, but I'm just going to tell you who is who and and how we're going to do this. Thank you. Um, To my immediate left is Jessica Clark, who works at the Center for Social Media as our research director. Uh, And she is going to frame the issues. She's in a good position to do so because she was the co-author with me of a white paper on exactly this subject called Public Media 2.0, Dynamic Engaged Publics. Does everybody here have a copy of that? If you don't have a copy, raise your hand. Matt Gordon. What a TA at the Center for Social Media is happy to help you. Okay. Uh, To her left uh, is Ellen Hume, uh, who is going to speak on technological innovation and uh, strategies by which these kinds of behaviors can be encouraged, which she's working on at MIT with some brilliant graduate students. Uh, Ellen is going to disappear early, um, so uh, we're going to need to get her insights early on. Then we're going to Persephone Miel, who has been working at uh, the Berkman Center at Harvard on the question of the transformation of journalism. And uh, it's been a a real breath of fresh air to meet Persephone because it's uh, uh, so much of the discussion around these issues from the side of journalism and public public broadcasting has been hand-wringing. So much of what people on this panel are about is about Uh, understanding the potential and possibilities of a changing environment. Um, And Persephone is among them. The the honorary gentlemen on this panel are uh, Dean Jansen and Jake Shapiro. Both of these people are people who have been working for years on how to operationalize these concepts in very practical ways. Dean Jansen has been working with participatory culture Um, the Participatory Culture Foundation on developing an open video platform. Jake Shapiro, who wears so many hats I couldn't possibly uh, get them all right, but uh, one of the brilliant things he's done, uh, uh, partly uh, through his association with Berkman at Harvard and partly through his association with public broadcasting, is to create... Uh, uh, an independent broker for independent producers of radio and public broadcasters through the platform PRX, which you can find at prx.org. 
and I don't know if I mentioned that uh, uh, Dean Jansen's uh, open video platform is available at Miro, M-I-R-O. Okay, and so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jessica. I'm sorry, I have to go with my equipment. So as Pat mentioned, we've spent the last two years thinking and talking and ruminating about what public media 2.0 might mean. And we've talked to a lot of experts, some of whom you see today and some of whom are in the audience, so thanks to everyone for their participation. Before I get to what we decided public media is, uh, I wanted to tie some of our questions to the themes of this conference. In the mission statement, two concepts were advanced. First, there's time-based media, which is durable, static. And then there's space-based media, which is more ephemeral. That's the papyrus in the subtitle for the conference. It's ephemeral, it's dynamic, it, it moves, it circulates. So in terms of the public media question, I, I want you to sort of hold these, these questions in your head. How can the deep archives and traditions of legacy public media, that is broadcast, newspapers, print, be used to generate relevant new projects in the participatory media environment? And how do new mobile and participatory tools allow the public or publics to define and create public media on the fly? Now, before I reveal our definition, I wanted to ask you to, to sit for a minute and think, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you hear the phrase public media? How many of you thought NPR or PBS? How many of you thought boring and old? Oh, only, okay, that's good. Only we have a friendly crowd. All right, hopefully by the end of this panel, you, will, you won't think any of those things. So we've reframed Public Media 2.0 as media platforms or projects or outlets that provide a, con a context or content that allows publics to form around shared issues, as Pat mentioned, without political or corporate interference. Well, this draws partially from Dewey, partially from Habermas, and partially from what we think should exist and what we are seeing evidence of. The paradigm shifts in which public media 2.0 is arising include the shift from broadcast to network, from consumption of, of media to conversation, from situated media to ubiquitous media, and from the library or the archive, for you librarians in the crowd, to the cloud. In public media 2.0, the customer or the citizen is a new platform. And what that means is that really new habits of media use are informing the way that people consume, use, and discuss media in ways that they couldn't before. Choice is paramount. You can get whatever you want anytime, night or day. Conversation. Not only are people talking about media, they're talking directly to media makers and then sometime, sometimes changing the content. Uh, they're curating media on YouTube, on Twitter, on Dig. Uh, they're creating media at a mad rate, rates that I can't even keep track of to, to, to quote them in talks. And they're collaborating with one another and with traditional media makers. So this means that forming publics is not the sort of static process that, it, that maybe it once was in the broadcast era. You can participate in publics not just through your daily paper, not just through PBS, 
but through your mobile phone, through games, through local radio, all kinds of choices. And public media 2.0 experiments, as a result, are breaking out of the old zones. You don't, it's no longer only public media if it appears in PBS or on NPR. Hybrid projects are flourishing. There's pro-amateur pro collaborations, like Off the Bus, which is on the Huffington Post and was a political reporting experiment that happened in 2008. Nonprofit and for-profit collaborations. PRX has been able to find ways to get some money to independent producers, but also for its users to, to use tools on its site to curate independent radio. Uh, Multi-platform, an inconvenient truth, kind of an old example, but it was in the report, and it shows how just a film is no longer what you make. You also make it a companion book, an educational guide, you know, a learning tool. Uh, Multi-outlet. ProPublica is an example of traditional journalism in some cases, in some cases not, being produced for whichever outlet is going to generate the most buzz for that story. So instead of, a, instead of a centralized sort of filter, we have a network of possible producers. Um, and a lot of you in the room are on this chart. Public media is there, public broadcasting is there, but so is independent media, so are commercial media makers, so are libraries, so are schools. The new tools allow all of us to become media producers, and that means that, that many new possibilities are, and connections are, are available to us. So bringing us back to this question of static versus dynamic media, I just wanted to offer up a couple of examples that, that demonstrate our, our new realities. So this first one, um, Jake can tell you about a, a bit more, the public radio tuner. What this is, is on your iPhone, you can actually call up a whole range of streams of public radio stations. And, you know, you could be in Topeka and listen to Chicago. You could be in Philly, you know, and listen to D.C. Or there's even some curated streams on here, jazz stations, things like that. So this is an example of programming content that, that's stable in its traditional form, but has now, is now dynamically accessible. Here's another model, a stable outlet, Al Jazeera, and dynamic content. So this is a tool called Yushahidi. It's um, open source and it's portable. Different sites can install it. And what it allows people to do is report in from their mobile phones. So during the latest uh, violence in Gaza at the end of 08, People were using this tool to report in where traditional reporters couldn't go. They weren't being allowed in. So these are just, just two among many, many examples, and you'll hear more, uh, two examples of how public media might look and function in the future. We're going to keep thinking about this. Uh, we have a conference coming up, which I invite you to check out. It's called Beyond Broadcast. Um, Jake helped to found it, and it's been making its way around our various institutions. It's, it's a pretty interesting conference. Um, we're also examining convening conversations around policy for public media 2.0, which looks very different than, than the sort of traditional funding of stations that has been happening over the last three or four decades. Um, and we're researching impact measurements for mission-driven media, including public media, because the way to know if publics have formed is to find out what happened once the media was made. That's it. If you'd like to learn more, futurepublicmedia.net. Thanks. Greetings. 
Um, Jessica, you gave me a wonderful way to approach my little brief presentation, which is the question that I start with before we talk about how glorious everything is now. I have thought a long time about why didn't the mass media help to form publics? What was wrong? Because when I was a newspaper reporter, that was what we thought we were doing. We thought we were empowering the public through information. This was the whole point of day after day going and asking unpopular questions of recalcitrant documents and officials and even members of the public. I've had my enormous luck to be working with Henry Jenkins, Mitch Resnick, and Chris Csikszentmihalyi here at MIT for a little over a year at the Center for Future Civic Media. And um, the thoughts that I have here may not reflect the current meme there, but it's really what I've been thinking about ever since I arrived. Um, first of all, we all know how much the old media are in collapse, and I think this graphic, which is, this is not a live internet connection, but I think there was a story either in the Wall Street Journal today or yesterday that really put uh, wonderful <coughs> documentation on the story of what's happening to the old mainstream media. So the question is, to me, um, what have we gained and what have we lost uh, when they've collapsed? Well, I think one of the main things that went wrong didn't connect the dots between news and action. This seems obvious to some people now, but when journalists thought it was a, a biased thing to actually signal in a story, this is how you can take action, here's whom to contact, here are the organizations working on it, here's, here are their phone numbers. Um, when that was considered unethical because you were taking a stand, that cut the public out. It did not help create agency for the public, and I think that was probably the chief lack for creating publics and, um, and a, a very important um, law, um, failure. Yet, and these are old examples, some journalism institutions did play a key role in democracy when they worked right. And just to, to um, actually I should go back on that a bit. Sorry, this microphone is having some issues. It's migrating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things about, um, about these old media that, that didn't work right is that I think we stirred up emotions, but we didn't give people a place to go. There was no agency for the public, either in creating the story or taking paths to action. But also, you all know this, stories were written for those who were already following the details. And most people were distracted rather than engaged by this meticulous reporting. So the point of the exercise was that you would write for those few officials who were making policy and pray that they were embarrassed enough by what you were writing um, to actually uh, force some policy changes. Um, thank you. So what do we get when we get new civic media? Well, we've talked, Jessica talked a little bit about this. Does anybody here know about C Click Fix? Has, is anybody here from C Click Fix? No. Okay, well this is actually a, one of the examples that I like uh, very much. It's not something that we've created, it's actually a .com rather than an open source uh, project, which is what we specialize in. But C Click Fix is the kind of example of what I'm excited about, and it's uh, a project in which the public decides, a public, to use Pat and Jessica's key figuration here, um, they decide that they're going to watch over a certain area. Say it's their neighborhood, or it's their university, 
And they're going to be responsible if someone uh, decides to report a certain kind of problem. Um, for example, potholes. And that's how the Boston Globe is using it on their website. So uh, if a pothole is discovered, uh, it is reported to this map. And then um, individuals who have decided they're going to be responsible for that issue um, take that to the next level and either go in and fill the pothole themselves or have agency with the government institution that in, is involved with potholes in that community. So it creates a citizen uh, engagement in establishing priorities for government at the horizontal dispersed grassroots level from the bottom up uh, rather than relying on endless phone calls to City Hall that don't get answered. I think it's a very interesting way of looking at things. In some communities where they don't like graffiti, I know here we like graffiti, but in some communities they don't, it's used by businesses to say, oh, oops, graffiti just went up on that wall. Will somebody go paint it over? So I know that may not be a popular example, but that's how it's being used in some communities. Um, another example that did come out of the Center for Future Civic Media, Alyssa Wright, graduate student who got her master's degree last year, um, decided that the, um, the See Something, Say Something campaign in the New York City and Boston uh, transit systems was creating a toxic culture. Um, has anybody participated or seen that See Something, Say Something campaign? It came out of 911, and it, it said that if you see something suspicious, report it to the authorities immediately, whether it's a bag or a practice or a strange-looking individual that you think might be a terrorist. And the reports that actually came into the New York Transit uh, Police, uh, as Alyssa's research found, really did not turn up uh, anybody who was really engaged in what turned out to be suspicious or difficult behavior. They may have been suspicious, but they weren't actually doing anything evil or wrong. Uh, and so she thought this was creating a toxic culture. She wanted people to look at each other differently. And so she said, let's create a, a place where we map the incidences of strangers helping each other in our community. And she calls them hero reports. And this is her website, herereports.org. And she found, interestingly enough, that when the public were reporting their incidents of uh, kindness, return of a lost wallet, helping a blind person on the subway, uh, whatever it was, rescuing a dog that was being um, uh, harried in some way, that this kind of, of random acts of kindness and generosity, stranger to stranger, that she found more reports coming from the tougher, more crime-ridden areas of New York rather than the high-toned Park Avenue areas. I thought that was interesting. That's the kind of, of project that warrants, I think, much more serious research. Is that just a random accident, or is there some connection between acts of civic kindness and um, the, the economic and social area that, that they come from? So um, one of the things to say about these, these new... Um, these new media is they obviously offer an enormous opportunity for creativity. They, um, they're unleashing that, that ability to be, participate in a public, and, and Henry has uh, wonderfully created this participatory culture frame with which we like to look at these things, the spreadability of media. Um, but um, a couple things to say as we talk about how the creativity is unleashed, and these are some of the, the um, organizations that I think are interesting to look at, um, but a couple things to say about that um, are that it, it isn't at all an unmixed blessing, I would say. For one thing, while the agency shifts, 
away from elites who are professionalized and in some cases experts, um, and we're bypassing institutions. Um, one of the things that happens is that not only agency has shifted, but responsibility has shifted. And that responsibility requires media literacy. It requires people to actually step up and become part of a public rather than simply cruising through as zombies on roller coasters enjoying the ride. Um, and while I think we have wonderful new ways to hold the powerful accountable through crowdsourcing and other things, um, I don't think the new accountability has yet been born. I think uh, most of the examples that I see of crowdsourcing or wonderful uh, cases in which civic media have moved mountains, it's because they've partnered in some way with the old megaphone of mainstream media. It's because it was picked up by CBS or it was picked up by the Financial Times or some other place. And that's one thing that I think will happen, but I think at the moment we're not there yet. We're still slouching toward Bethlehem. Um, Another point that troubles me is that a lot of the new sources of um, news and engagement are built on popularity and familiarity. And what I find the hardest to cover and what was always my point of pride was asking the unpopular question, writing a story about water in California that only five people would follow, but that was deeply important if you're going to watchdog the federal water policy. I think it's hard to find that kind of consistent uh, attention if you're going to worry about a dig kind of rating for your story. Are you going to really cover that agency that's so boring and awful? I think there's a problem there. Also, really fine, good journalists doing amazingly courageous work are really embattled right now. I don't consider that a plus because I think they are bringing some expertise and courage to the, to the, to the uh, fray, and I don't think they're being supported culturally or financially, and I emphasize culturally. Because I think cultural support for some journalism is required before a business model can emerge. Um, and so the good news in the middle of all that difficulty is that media access and literacy um, have become vital, and that's, that's good. And the news demand and need are still there for people who, who care about it. And, here, and so while I think the, the, some of this may be still very much a work in progress. As we all know, this is only the beginning. So we all have a lot of great opportunities ahead. Thank you. Um, hi, tough acts to follow, especially since talking to both uh, Ellen and Jessica and also Pat throughout my year at Berkman has been very much part of my project and very helpful to me, so I already agree with everything they said, so there's nothing really to add. Uh, <laughs> the Media Republic project was a joint project by folks at the Berkman Center and the MacArthur Foundation, who after MacArthur Foundation had been uh, supporting the Berkman Center for quite a long time in all of its work, but including much work supporting and facilitating a lot of work around citizen media and blogging and other things. They decided that it was time to take a step back and try to figure out 
in the words of the, well, the way it was told to me by that the president of the MacArthur Foundation said, well, why hasn't all the citizen media revolutionized the world yet? Um, <laughs> where is all that democracy we were supposed to get? Uh, so <laughs> I was brought on to answer that question or at least look at that question and uh, brought on as someone who was very much from outside of the world of blogging um, to take what we eventually decided to call a skeptical but constructive look at where participatory media is now, what is happening and what some of the optimism of many years ago, is it, was it unjustified or are we simply waiting for the next step and what does it really mean for, specifically for news and information, not for the whole world of participatory media, which is obviously a huge um, subject. News and information is big enough by itself. Um, and the Media Republic Project followed on a 2005 conference that was done at Berkman called Blogging Journalism at Credibility, which got together a small group of very high-powered folks from traditional media and also some of the best and most active folks working in blogging, citizen journalism, and so on. And the message from that conference was that the war between bloggers and journalists is over. In fact, Jay Rosen from NYU wrote a, this piece as part of the final report a re called Blogging Versus Journalism is Over. And it was supposedly the place where they everyone got together and said, no, 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 we all want to build democracy together, and there's a place for the old media, place for professional journalism, and professional journalists recognize that there's an important place for these new voices and we're all going to work together. Uh, in 2007, when we started the Media Republic Project, that was still pretty clearly not really true. Um, perhaps it was aspirational. Uh, and what we started to, our point of view looking at all of this was to try to look at the structures and the ecosystem and the relationship between different kinds of structures and where how that was affecting the creation of news and information. So one of the early uh, ways we mapped this out was looking at you know, the traditional media, as you can see, which as we all know, are, involves professional, most of the content creation is professional, it's also owned rather than free, uh, and, but it includes both, both for-profit and non-profit or public and various forms of that, this is just um, examples, obviously. And then the participatory media on the right, which includes obviously free thing, uh, nonprofit like Wikipedia, which is for many people who were very excited about the citizen media, citizen journalism, has become sort of the, the goal, you know, the Wikipedia magic fairy dust that is going to, we're going to sprinkle on everything and you know, eventually the, the magic of Wikipedia will spread to everything else and create the journalism we need. And then the for-profit free content creation uh, arena with, among other things, YouTube, which is for the media business, the goose that gold, laid the golden egg. Because if, people, if you can build something where people will come for free and create content for you and charge money for it or sell ads against it, then you've, you've solved everything. Um, 
as you start to fill in more things on this, this grid, you begin to see that some of the new experiments that hover around in the middle are actually, to my mind, the interesting things that are happening. So uh, if you see Global Voices, Talking Points Memo, Daily Coast, and this is all, I mean, this is not a scientific uh, arrangement, but the idea being that the things that are combining, just as Jessica mentioned, the hybrid projects where some professionalism, uh, organization, institutional journalism is laid on top of contributions by a larger group of, excuse me, larger group of people. Uh, these are beginning to be the more interesting things. And um, so that was sort of a first cut that we did in looking at things. Um, and then another cut that we did in the papers that we published was looking at a typology of media, of the kinds of media organizations that create news and journal, news and information. And what we realized was that if you leave aside the technology, because in fact the technology is not the most relevant part, um, if people, people keep talking about saving the newspaper but, and they fixate on the paper, but in fact, that's not really what's most interesting about the newspaper. Um, and if you, if you look at these uh, five categories that we came up with, and again, as we, as we find out, the most interesting ones are the ones that are impossible to put in any one category. But uh, publishers and news agencies, which are fairly um, obvious and traditional, and then publishers, of course, also including broadcasters. Um, we ended up using the word publisher just because we couldn't find a third word. Uh, and then these other newer kinds which are more representative of the new participatory networked digital media aggregators, although there have been aggregators in the, in the old media world, and author-centric, which is the classic blog, uh, and other things. And then we ended up using the word audience-driven rather than audience-centric, but to represent a vast number of things where a community is the primary editorial intelligence for the product, whatever the product is. So when the publisher, if the publisher is a controlling thing, the audience-driven relies on the audience or a community, that an uncontrollable mass <laughs> of people uh, are actually determining not only what is posted because it may not always be that. Sometimes I would I put dig in the same category actually. So sometimes lots of the content is actually created elsewhere, but that the editorial product is created by the group mind. Um, but the fact is, if you look at the uh, examples, you'll find that there are plenty of new media, quote unquote, new media that are still very much using the old media models. I mean, the Huffington Post is a publisher. They are not a blog, and they are certainly not an audience-driven community thing. They're a publisher, and they're a commercial publisher, just like the New York Times. Um, and so anyway, this is for skipping. All right, whatever. Um, why Spot, up is, Spot Us is up here. Um, so the things that were most interesting to us, what we, we saw is the same thing that Ellen was talking about, is that if you look at what's happening in the participatory media world in terms of news and journalism, the overlap or lack of overlap with the traditional media 
um, is pretty striking. There still are these very specific things that the old media model did for us and the things that I think people mean when they say, oh my god, we have to save the newspapers, um, which is the watchdog function, the, the um, constancy of continuing to report on something whether or not you felt like getting out of bed that morning and reporting on it or not. And so this kind of, these functions, and our conclusion was that those functions are definitely going away in the traditional media world, as I think we've all seen, and they're not being replaced one-to-one. -one. So there's been a lot of talk about, and I think part of the problem is that people posit it that way, that we have to either save the newspaper or replace the newspaper. And my opinion is that we have, neither one of those is actually a viable way to go forward. Uh, I believe that the for-profit advertising supported mass media that was the way that America got its uh, reporting, not most of the rest of the world, is a really strange historical accident. And I think it's over. It's just not going to happen anymore. So the editorial intelligence that was embodied, that was what people mean when they say we have to save the newspaper, which is a group of people working together not in, isolate, insulated from the commercial pressures of their advertising-driven mass market media, I don't think that any of the media companies that exist now are going to recreate that because I don't, I think that their business model is so, is completely over and I think if they continu continue and thrive, which they may, it won't be by doing the investigative journalism, the watchdog journalism, the things that Ellen is talking about. And I think that's the biggest challenge going forward is that they won't do it and so far I personally don't see the evidence that the just volunteer energy of the blogosphere, blogs, etc., um, is going to replace it. Even though there are certain, there are definitely cases that people have done certain things, and we know that there are examples. After looking all over the place, I mean, if you look at what most of the volunteer online news and information is about, even if you take away all the, you know, really un, uninteresting stuff, the celeb you drop the celebrity gossip and everything else, and the parenting advice, um, the two top fields are continue to be electoral politics, mostly national, and everything and anything about technology. And those fields have grown and grown and grown and continue to grow, and yet, the traditional media haven't said, oh, well, look, the blogosphere is covering that. We'll just devote our resources to investigative journalism instead. They're there more than ever. They're, you know, running political blogs and technology blogs and increasing. So what's actually happening is you're getting twice as much of that stuff from different versions, and that's fine. But um, so this is where I think that the concept of public media that Jessica and Pat have so beautifully laid out is going to be critical, and finding the kinds of organizations that are going to make it happen is, to me, the big challenge. 
So a couple of our interesting experiments, one that um, Ellen already mentioned is called Spot Us, where it's an idea to crowdfund articles. You can go online and make your contribution to an article that you think is interesting. Um, the things that are interesting about it to me are that it combines traditional journalism skills and values, both at the level of the individual journalist, as, as they do vet the journalists, and also that they have an editorial structure. And that they're taking from, they're taking something different from the audience. They're ex understanding that not every member of the audience actually wants to spend time fact-checking, but that they may still want to contribute and play a role. Um, Global Voices is another one that comes out of Berkman, as I'm sure you all know, uh, which I think is doing an amazing job of bringing the global element in, which is another place where I think the potential of networks digital media is not even close to being realized. Um, and I'm going to flip through these quickly because I think we're getting towards time to have a discussion. Um, this is another small, very small experiment, which I love. Um, at New Hampshire Public Radio, they made a little map showing you where your town meeting was happening and what the budget was. So it combines these elements of visualization and government transparency, which is, a, I think, a really increasingly important part of this sphere. But it also brings in the professional reporters who suddenly have this source of information. Like, what's happening is that the municipalities send in their stuff to the site, and it gets gathered there. So instead of a reporter having to even make phone calls to find out this stuff, the reporter has access to all this stuff as well as the audience, and the reporters are able to do deeper and more comparative studies than they normally were, than they had been able to before. Um, so anyway, my f uh, feeling is that there's a lot still to be done, and a lot of my paper, which you can download at mediarepublic.org, if you like, um, calls on people to look for new models, to look for models that don't leave every, that look beyond what exists now and look at the things that aren't being done as opposed to the things that are being done already. Um, and also, in particular in that way, to look also at the other parts of the audience, the non-wired, non-wealthy, non-white, <laughs> the, uh, which are sometimes in danger of becoming the three W's in this country, uh, to look beyond the United States, because I think there are a lot of media models out there that aren't being used, and to um, look to things that have, that bring some of the elements out of legacy media that we do want to save, which is the editorial intelligence and the organization of institutional journalism. So that's... Okay, so uh, that's, uh, that's it for the big think. Uh, you, you might be surprised <clears throat> to, uh, to discover that these three women who've been presenting all have uh, so much in common, but it's no surprise to us because we discovered a couple of years ago that the Center for Social Media was funded by Ford <clears throat> and uh, Persephone was being funded by MacArthur and Ellen was being funded by Knight <laughs> to all ask very similar questions. And um, we, we really felt like if the funders weren't going to talk to each other, at least we should. And it's really been an incredibly exciting 
adventure in uh, not quite collaboration, but a lot of really exciting conversations. Uh, But enough of that level. We'd like now to turn to people who have actually been trying to build the kind of stuff we've been talking about to get to get their take on what these ideas look like when you're grappling with trying to make them work. And I'll turn first to Dean. Testing. All right. Um, yeah, if someone can pull up uh, getmiro.com, that'd be great. Oh, oh thank you, Jessica. Um, <laughs> all right. So we at the Partic- Participatory Culture Foundation have been uh, working on um, tools for media reform. About four years ago, before YouTube was uh, even anything that people knew about, Um, we were saying, how are people going to engage with video as it moves online? Obviously, television's going online. What's that going to look like? Um, And so our our answer was um, to put together a piece of open technology. Um, We're sort of modeled after the Mozilla Foundation that does uh, Firefox. So the way I like to to talk about Miro, which is um, the website... Actually, Jessica, could you scoot the mouse um, off the edge? And then you'll be able to see. There you go. Um, that's the, the Miro player. So this is a piece of free and open source software that anyone can download. Um, and it acts as an HD uh, video aggregator. It allows you to get video from all over the internet, um, whether it's hosted on YouTube or on someone's server. Um, and the idea was that people shouldn't have to go to uh, gateways to find content, video content. They should be able to make a direct connection with creators. And so that's what we're doing here is, is injecting. It's, it's kind of like friendly consumer software, but we're secretly a media reform project. So we're, we're injecting um, open standards and open source and uh, kind of uh, best practices. So when you're, when you're watching through something like Miro or when you're browsing on a browser like Firefox, you're actually, you're, you're actually acting as a small sort of um, advocate for openness on the internet. Um, and the way that... here. Why is that a policy goal that's so important? Sure. I'll give it, I mean, a good example is, if you remember probably about eight years ago, you'd run into websites that said you must have uh, Microsoft Internet Explorer version whatever, and you don't ever see that anymore. And the reason is because um, enough people have taken up Firefox. They have uh, 200 million plus users um, worldwide, and enough people have, have taken up Firefox that developers are creating websites for standards instead of for Microsoft browsers. Um, and so that, that sort of, um, those standards, the reason they're important in this space is because they keep, uh, they keep everyone kind of honest. They keep everyone, they keep the, the playing level, uh, the playing field level. Uh, so, um, it, with video, to give a few examples of, of the direction that we're, we're going right now, um, we have YouTube, which is, has been amazing. Um, it's been a revolution of sorts. And it's, 
a really cool website, but at the same time, it's a website, and it's where a lot of people, uh, a lot of my friends, in fact, when they're searching for video, they search on YouTube, and if they don't find it, it probably isn't on the internet, so they stop searching. And that's problematic because at that point, YouTube becomes kind of a gateway, um, not too dissimilar from uh, something that we, you know, an, an older version of what we were doing with the, the, um, the one-to-many, the broadcast media. Uh, Hulu is another website that's similar. And, and there are, there's room for a lot of different websites, and people say, well, why don't you just post your video on uh, Rever or some other website? Because obviously people can just go to those other websites to find them. But if they're not, if, if their audience is aggregated at one place and they're not looking um, through the entire internet, um, standards kind of, they, they make it easier for uh, things like Yahoo and Google to index the entire internet, and then you're able to search across everything. You don't have to know what server, what site a piece of content is on to find it. Um, I'm getting really technical, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll scoot back a little bit. Um, so standards are good for, for making <coughs> participatory, um, participatory publics. Um, and so that's kind of, with video, we're looking at how to, how to maximize that aspect of things through, through software, through um, markets, kind of using markets to uh, uphold standards and to push new standards in place. Um, the biggest obstacles right now are, um, th there's a lot of, well, this is also kind of technical stuff, but there's a lot of pr proprietary technology in video. So with text and image, Obviously, any, any web browser without any specific uh, technology can access a blog that has uh, images and, and text on it. Whereas if you have uh, video right now, you need <laughs> specific plugins. You need to make sure that um, you've got Flash installed usually or QuickTime or something like that. These, uh, these act as sort of, these act as kind of, um, they, sl they slow down the pace of innovation because you're having to ask permission to integrate, say, Flash. You can't just put it into any browser, into any phone. You have to ask the permission of, of Adobe or, or another company if it's a different technology. So um, the, the more we can kind of, we're, there are a lot of people working on tools that are also open and royalty free um, for sort of all the different layers of video. And that's kind of, that's right now, that's a big challenge. Um, and, and kind of helping people to understand why it's important and to get momentum behind these tools is also a big challenge. I think that's the bigger challenge. And yes, we're putting together a conference um, this summer. It's June 19th and 20th. It's called the Open Video Conference. And we're going to be asking these questions in a way that's not super technical. We're going to be asking them kind of from the, the higher level of, you know, what, what are the key um, components to have the most cultural engagement, the, the, the highest level of preservation for free expression and, and free speech, and uh, the, the sort of most, um, the, the best ecosystem for innovation and for moving forward, and to go, to take what we have with YouTube and to go the next step forward in terms of how do we, how do we get it more dispersed, more democratic, and kind of uh, make it more like the rest of the internet, more like text and image. Thank you. And thank you. I want to say Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Hi, everybody. Um, 
So would you like me to describe PRX a little bit? Do you want to? Um, yeah. Thanks. So PRX, um, in our piece of this whole puzzle, uh, we are, according, I think, to Persephone's typology, I guess, an aggregator. Um, Public Radio Exchange was founded as a nonprofit, very much in an entrepreneurial mode, as an Internet startup, um, but with the notion of connecting independent producers of public radio, spoken word, documentary, interviews, features, the kinds of things you hear on public radio, to connect them with local broadcast stations around the country with the intent both of helping those stations begin to really redefine how they're thinking about their role locally in communities as broadcast becomes just one of the ways that people are accessing that content and helping the independent producer community um, which has now been radically expanded because people can now start producing and telling and creating stories far beyond um, the traditional sources that we'd once found. Um, so PRX really acts as a, an online marketplace between the two. Anybody can create an account and upload audio. Um, we aren't actually screening on the intake side. It appears on the site. Um, we have then inviting the public to review and rate the pieces, but the stations really are our buyers in a sense. Um, the, 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 the first tier of where the quality of the content is determined and how it ends up getting used is with the local station saying, this is something I actually want to download license it and broadcast it to my audience. PRX really becomes then a broker not just to those local stations, but because it's an online database with now something like 20 or 30,000 stories, um, we're helping then move that onto other channels of distribution, including podcasting and iTunes and streams of content, um, trying both to fulfill a mission of saying there's important work that um, isn't only going to be found through broadcasts, um, but also trying to help develop new models that, that enable independent producers and other creators of that content to continue finding audiences and having incentives to create the work. Um, so part of it, actually, they do get paid royalties. A station will, uh, the main model is a station will pay for access, um, and then a uh, producer will earn royalties as their work is used. And then there's a free tier where a lot of it gets distributed in that fashion. We were, of course, concerned. We were wondering what kinds of content would pop up on the site and whether we'd start to encounter problems. Um, and there had been an interesting sort of self-regulated uh, community that formed around it where both because the sort of initial level of quality was high enough that anybody encountering and trying to upload their own audio started to really feel like they had to get their game up uh, to compete and to make it work, um, and because the buyers and the sort of main users are stations who are actually quite discriminating in how they're thinking about this. Um, the We did a project last year called the Public Radio Talent Quest, which was really kind of our version of, uh, we ended up calling it This American Idol. Uh, it was sort of the chance we had of getting, in public radio, a chance to really invite new people to come create a show or be a host on a public radio show, um, seeing what kinds of uh, uptake we got in the participatory uh, notion of just recording two minutes of audio and throwing something in. Um, and there was a, you know, just a, a remarkable response, a huge groundswell of support, um, underlining really for us uh, part of our story too, which is this bridge between where public radio as part of public broadcasting has been and where it could possibly go if it redefined its role um, in this broader definition of public media. Um, you know, we have our own uh, hopes for and frustrations about public broadcasting, um, but in the gap that, that I think Persephone is really helping describe between the current kind of collapse of traditional forms and the, the as of yet not really fulfilled um, new media forms, um, certainly we have a hope that there's a, a new role that public media, public broadcasting, as it tries to claim that title, um, could play, um, but it's going to take a lot of work to reconfigure it. Um, it has some tremendous assets, um, 
in, in, uh, in its hands, including a, a really loyal, very big audience, um, and uh, sort of a, a mass media audience. Um, it has these local institutions, which is uh, rare and increasingly going away in other media forms. Um, it has some uh, very compelling content and really talented uh, people putting that content out. Um, but on the public television side in particular, it's really hitting a wall in terms of its business model, um, in terms of its relevance um, with what's actually happening in the rest of the country, um, in terms of a narrowing of its audience uh, and a feeling like it's really out of step um, with what could be a much more you know, rich um, public definition of public media. Um, and this is, as the rest of media is sort of going through turmoil, certainly public broadcasting itself has recognized this problem. They're not oblivious to it. Um, it it's constructed in such a way that um, so it's sort of perfectly designed to never be able to punch its way out of a paper bag. Um, but um, it it's actually could be the moment uh, this coming sort of season of this discussion where some of these things really do change, partly because the urgency has really ramped up. Um, the crisis happening in other areas of journalism mean that there's increasing attention paid to what the public radio in particular part could be in this. Um, and I think there's a, there really is still a sense of, of experimentation and innovation within the field that's increasingly getting some support, with PureX being one of several examples where this has really started to take root and that the sort of stakeholders of the existing institutions, the funders, and the public are, are starting to support those kinds of models. One of the things that's been typical about public broadcasting since uh, its origins is that our radio has been the sort of forgotten element. Uh, radio was actually never supposed to be included in the Public Broadcasting Act. Yeah, they it was called it the, in. At the it end. was called the Public Television Act until the day before. <coughs> I have it, I have my own mic. I have to use it. I, but um, as as you see this uh, crisis of old mass media really coming to a head. It, the examples that seem to be very flexible within the public broadcasting system are coming from radio. Yeah. So what is it about radio that, that, that uh, after being the stepchild of public broadcasting sure. for so long, allows it to be the innovator? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, some of them truly are, that, you know, there's, there's rights and technology are, are a couple of them. Um, you know, one of the things that has held video and, and um, public television back is the complicated rights regimes that govern so many of the, the content um, items that are out there. So you often, especially in, in public broadcasting, PBS, don't have a single owner of a video. There's four owners, all of whom can say no and none of whom can say yes. Um, and you have um, existing DVD markets that provide enough revenue that you know, the, the windows of, of releasing it for broadcast and then for DVD mean that nobody's ready to uh, sort of take a much more open approach to distributing that programming. Public radio um, often doesn't have those, that layer of concerns, particularly around um, the sort of news information and spoken word content. And even in the music zone, um, we have a bit of a protected status around some of the more problematic copyright regimes because uh, the, on, on broadcast and simulcast for internet streams, um, the Corporation of Public Broadcasting has a blanket license for the music rights that allow um, public radio to really do a lot more um, with it. Um, some of the costs of major file distribution and things like that are lower. Uh, the production costs around some of the radio are lower. Um, and I think there's an institutional difference where the role that NPR has played and the competition within the field, you have NPR, Public Radio National, American Public Media, Minnesota Public Radio, and PRX. Um, you have a vibrant, independent producer community. There's There's a lot more... Uh, moving parts that I think have helped seed that 
and a, and a longer list of strong local stations. So within, within public radio, it sort of certainly falls off fast, but in, the, in, in some significant communities, there are local stations that are really pioneering as well. I mean, if you look at what WNYC in New York or Chicago Public Radio is doing, where they're launching an entire separate stream called Vocalo, which is an interesting project in and of itself, um, KCRW and the music uh, side of things in LA, um, there's, there, there are things happening on that level too, so it's a much richer um, community around that kind of experimentation. Um, and I think that that actually has allowed for public radio to start um, being further afield in some of these experiments, even though I think by and large the, on the national scale, most of them have been about repurposing existing content rather than really using the new platforms to try to encourage new talent or new forms. Thank you for mentioning the rights. Uh, another plug if you want to talk about uh, these issues of rights moving into the digital era, I'm going to be doing a workshop at 1.30 tomorrow afternoon. <coughs> and and I, what I take away from this, uh, Jake, is that if you're um, having a bad attitude about public broadcasting, you should stop looking at television and start listening to radio. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to make sure that we move now to questions and comments and, and contributions from the audience here. Any, anybody have something to respond to these people? Yes. Oh yeah! If you can go, um, if you can go to mics, everybody will be so much happier because they're recording this. And please say your name. And I called on this gentleman, so he's got to start. Come on. My name's Rory Litwin. Um, I, I have a, a hero in journalism, and it's I.F. Stone. And uh, he's somebody who accomplished a lot without institutional support. He just kind of went out there on his own and did investigative journalism. I wanted to ask what you think the situation would be for him if he were alive today. Would he be able to do the work that he did? Would he have an, an audience like he had at the time? And what is stopping, what is stopping another I.F. Stone from accomplishing what he did today? One of the most interesting things about this project for me is that uh, I came in out of independent journalism and I spent a long time thinking about and defending independent journalism. But the funny thing is that everybody who's an independent journalist, like I.F. Stone was, is a member of a public and thinks that public should form. We're all citizen, we, the citizen journalists become independent journalists, become professional journalists. The distinctions are fairly meaningless at this point. So I think that there's nothing stopping. There's lots of people who are pursuing the same kinds of things that he was pursuing. Some of them are doing it better than others, and some of them have bigger audiences than others. But I think he would find an even bigger audience than he had then, and he would also find a lot of really interesting peers you know, in different platforms who are interested in the questions of, of um, original documentation, government power, speaking truth to power. I think this is a, a great time to be an independent journalist. The other thing that I think is really important is, is the, uh, to remember the, the chart that Persephone drew where the really exciting examples are in the middle. <clears throat> One of the things that made I.F. Stone so important is that he was doing work that was not, about, um, was not being done in mass media but was picked up by mass media because he, had, he, he was this 
authoritative little voice. So there's that interaction between mass media and the ind independent voice. Yes, go ahead. And your uh, name. Hi, my name's Christopher Harper. Um, <coughs> I'll try to be short. Uh, I'd like to turn to the issue of delivery systems. Uh, what, what I do at Temple University is I send 160 students, uh, undergraduates, out into lousy neighborhoods to, to cover stories that the rest of the media don't cover. Uh, they're essentially low income, um, uh, ethnic, and and the difficulty that we have is is to is is to get the participa participation. I mean, we can have we can have um, our students go out. We can train the local uh, residents to to produce stuff, and we can put it up on a website. Um, but while the old media had a whole lot of problems, the delivery system was relatively inexpensive for the individual to get the community newspaper for virtually nothing, um, to buy the radio for virtually nothing. The television set was a little bit more expensive. The computer um, and the iPhone, you know, are outside the range of uh, a lot of the people in these areas. And, you know, while the computers may not be ubiquitous, the, um, the, 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 the cell phones are but because of you know the various companies, the various you know um, inadequacies of the telephones and the cost to get high quality video, you know essentially most people are using them for for voice and text. So I guess do you have any wonderful suggestions on the delivery system and the conversation, particularly in lower income areas? Um. Actually, one of the things that is really interesting that's happening in both for some of the hyper-local media that we saw and looked at and also in some brand new projects, the name of one in San Francisco that I can't remember, but is that people are actually launching print publications. The forum in New Hampshire, which started as a community website, found that it had to also print on paper what people are calling reverse publishing, because some of their readers in a rural New Hampshire area, that was the way they wanted to get it, and many of their advertisers were only interested in this hyper-local community thing if they could also see their ad on paper. Um, and then there's a project in San Francisco to do uh, local papers specifically targeting low-income neighborhoods where they are going to print on paper, and they're likely to be free paper. And there's actually a lot of advances in technology that are allowing much, much cheaper, there are these much, much cheaper printing presses now where you can print stuff, relatively low volume things for much less money. So I actually think that print newspapers will exist in different forms now. And, mobile yeah, technology. mobile phones. There are these things. They're mm -hmm. like based off of kind of what Nicholas Negroponte, um, One Laptop <laughs> Per Child, they started making very inexpensive small notebooks, and it's kind of caught on. Uh, this thing is like a $300 notebook. It's almost as powerful as anything you would have that was you know, maybe three, four years old. So it's, it's not out of date at all. Um, and I think these are going to get cheaper. And I mean, freepress.net uh, is working on, uh, they've got internet for everyone. It's a campaign to um, push access as far out into rural communities as well as in um, urban areas where there's not, you know, where people aren't able to afford the $50 a month connection for broadband. And go ahead, mobile. Mm -hmm. and, and anybody want to speak to mobile phones? Sure. Well, I was going to say, you know, radio is still radio and it's doing quite well as a, as a low cost um, transmission 
um, it's still just as hard to get onto a public radio station as it ever had been in terms of the, the pretty tight window of what they choose and the limited number of channels they operate. Um, ironically, they've spent a huge amount of money and time creating something called HD radio, which um, nobody here is using, but is adding channels and at least has started to come up with a rationale for having uh, side streams and additional streams of content. So there's now quite a lot more there happening. And indeed, one of the other reasons I think that, that, that radio has had a chance of propelling forward or sort of slingshotting into the new space is that indeed the, the mobile device actually matches really well with audio and audio delivery. And um, even though not everybody has iPhones um, and won't soon, the, that platform as a smartphone as a way to actually deliver some of that content is going to become um, increasingly a prevalent way. Um, perhaps more than anybody will buy, be buying netbooks or having their laptops, they will have mobile phones. And there will be a way to think about that as a delivery system. Particularly in poor neighborhoods. Next. Mary Bryson, University of British Columbia. Um, we seem to expect a lot uh, out of our publics. And I'm wondering about uh, what, what you think of uh, the, the work that, that many political theorists did in the 80s on, on helping to add some complexity to the Habermasian idea of a public uh, really helped us to see that publics are constituted by their exclusions as much as they are by their inclusions. And there's a way that this um, locution of participation in particular sometimes swing, seems to swing into something like populism, that where you have a kind of a imagined community coalescing around an artifact, that there aren't going to be exclusions that are constituted as much as there are inclusions. And I'm wondering about how it is that you think that we might move forward in thinking through this notion of a public as something that takes into account the ways in which it's, it's incredibly problematic. I, I think that that is, I, I welcome your reading <clears throat> of our uh, white paper and also of the public media FAQ. Does everybody have a postcard leading you to the public media FAQ? It's sort of purplish and gray. That's good. Uh, and I would love to hear what you have to say after reading that. That's why we are so careful to say publics and not public. Uh, we are certainly aware of that entire literature. Um, I, uh, I think that that conversation has yet to be had. But uh, that one of the terrible things that has happened in, di in discourses about democracy is uh, a freezing of the notion of publics into some uh, highly abstract uh, Sunday school version of good citizens, good, good citizenship, uh, when we know that the entire process of engagement with um, any issue that involves uh, allocation of resources in the society, power, um, has, um, has all the lively elements of, um, of conflict in it. And the reason why people engage in it has, uh, has all the elements of, of sociality that they brought with them. <coughs> so that, that's why we insist that the issue of public has to be related directly to the issue of problems, or as some of my colleagues like to say, not problems, issues, uh, because they think problems is too negative. However, the reality is that by the time you're organizing around an issue that you would be a member of the public about, that is an issue of misallocation of resources for you. 
And so you'll form with other people who you think have those misallocations, suffer from that misallocation of resources. And it might be, for instance, in my building, all the women who really were pissed off because there was no bathroom on our floor, and the men had a really nice big one. (coughs) And it took getting all the women together to deal with physical plant to demonstrate that that was an inequality we were not going to live with. And we were a public around that. So anyway, next. Uh, hi, Michael Lithgow, Carleton University, um, Ottawa. Great panel. Um, it's a really great panel. My question is, is I'm involved <coughs> in a, a project in Canada to try and create a national archive for alternative media and citizens media. I'm wondering if or what kind of archival strategies that you folks have thought about, particularly in these new sort of hybrid institutional slash participatory journalism projects and just what you have to say about that if, if you've thought about it. A key issue at nine minutes to eight. Uh, Okay, who has the answer? Um, I'll just speak quickly to print. Um, I've been involved in uh, a number of efforts to archive everything from paper zines to uh, political magazines to websites, and um, there's no coherent answer. I think the Internet Archive offers some some great examples of how to how to archive uh, online resources. I think finding an institutional partner that has some sympathies to the alternative media is your first challenge. And then, um, and then I'd say, you know, collaborate as much as possible to make sure that the that those materials are given the, the proper value uh, in that setting. So I guess. Two things. Um, my organization, we don't actually archive any media at all. We rely on kind of people to find their own solutions. Um, and archive.org is one uh, kind of a public way of, of archiving media. The, the thing that I would like to touch on, though, is that people, a lot of people are thinking of things like YouTube as sorts of archives. Um, and we're learning quickly that that's not really true. There are so many, I I worked on a project with some of the folks at um, MIT Free Culture, it's uh, called YouTube, T-O-M-B. It's youtube.mit.edu, and it's a website that tracks um, videos that have been taken down from YouTube. Um, And most of them are taken down for copyright complaints. Um, Some of them are very legitimate, you know, a full episode of The Simpsons or something like that. But some of them are much less clear. We had a a gentleman email us um, saying that his parody of the the NOM, the um, National Organization for Marriage, if anyone's been paying attention to that kind of, uh, what was that, a PSA that they did? It was kind of... Okay, an advertisement, yeah. They did the National Organization for Marriage, which is an anti-gay uh, marriage, anti-gay rights organization, um, put up a, an advertisement, and it was kind of parodied and, uh, in a number of different places, but this gentleman's parody was on tons of blogs, and it got his, his entire account got uh, suspended because of this video, because of a, 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 like a, a copyright claim from... NOM that was completely not, it, they had no basis. So, so back up. <laughs> back up your everything. Yes, <laughs> back things up, archive.org. Jake. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in for a second on it. Um, 
You know, we have a, an interesting take on some of this in that PRX itself has become an archive, but um, that wasn't its primary purpose. But I think what's interesting is that when there's an opportunity to create incentives for the producers and owners and um, the, the creators of that media to push their work out and to follow standards and to actually um, get it out into a space that will then preserve it, um, there's a, a, you know, it's a very low-cost way of actually starting to assemble something pretty powerful as opposed to going out with the idea of creating archive and going and finding, digitizing, licensing, grabbing, centralizing, all of that, um, which is happening. There's a project just getting going this year in a sort of pilot phase within public broadcasting called the American Archive, and, and it's an attempt um, that is funded by CPB um, to begin digitizing the archives of initially local stations um, around uh, civil rights content that they've had for a long time and which a lot of it is deteriorating. Um, but the, the grander vision of it is actually to centralize and make a um, you know, preservation-level archive as well as a distribution and access point for public broadcasting content. Um, and that'll be worth keeping an eye on. They're trying to you know, do it that's keyed into other archival um, efforts. But I think it's it's um, has a, a, an attempt to do something that actually might end up involving a much more web-friendly um, approach to it as opposed to just an archiving project. Uh, thank you. Um, I think this is the point at which we're going to have to wind it up. But um, let me say that I think I, one of the things I took away from the morning pan the the first plenary uh, was that um, if you don't know what it is, you're in a very poor position to even think about trying to preserve it, archive or catalog it. Uh, and that one of the things that we are, we have all collectively been trying to do is to identify a, a zone of behavior that we're calling public media 2.0 and to identify it as something to look at, something to track, uh, something to understand as potentially valuable and something to recognize as perpetually vulnerable. I think nothing... Uh, in what people have described, everything that people have described here as emerging public media 2.0 is an experiment. Most of it is local or regional. Most of it has some kind of uh, grant funding associated with it. And none of it has to exist. There's nothing that says that public media 2.0 has to grow into national or international practice or be recognized um, as as a significant part of culture. At the same time, that we know that if we don't have those practices that help people form as publics, we, we will be the poorer for it as a society. So uh, I think that the, the issue of archiving is really to- completely closely linked to this very fundamental scholarly act of naming. Uh, and with that, I'd like to thank the panelists uh, for, uh, for their contribution and to thank you for coming. And feel free to discuss with uh, all of us uh, for a few minutes after the panel. Thank you. Thank you.